Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. In business, service is everything. Cintas delivers what you need to better serve your customers. Whether it's freshly laundered work apparel for almost any job imaginable, tested and inspected fire protection systems, first aid and safety supplies, on-site AED training, or mops and restroom products stocked and ready when you need them. Better work days happen together. So visit Cintas.com. Oh, I'm ready! And get ready for the workday. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Learn more at bluehost.com wondersuite. Welcome to The Rest is Politics, leading with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And we have got the mayor of the West Midlands and the mayor of Greater Manchester with us. So they centre on two of the great cities in the United Kingdom and the surrounding areas. And they are here with us today. Now, so that is Andy Street, West Midlands, and Andy Burnham, Greater Manchester. But this is our first podcast, gentlemen, with two guests in the studio and annoyingly you have the same name (laughs) now our listeners have already worked out that rory and i have very different voices and very different accents which they're probably pretty well used to by now so i think we should start by getting the listener accustomed to the voices and accents of our guests and that way we won't have to keep saying andy s andy b whatever so, going alphabetically, I'd like the first Andy, Mr. Burnham, to introduce himself and give a brief description of current job and a very brief potted version of life so far. Oh, goodness <laughs> me. Well, uh, thank you for having us both on, uh, by the way. It's a, an honour, isn't it, uh, Andy? I think people may be used to my no-man's-land northwest uh, drawl by now, so maybe they, they do know my voice. Um, so, I am the first elected mayor of Greater Manchester, having been in Parliament for 16 years. And in the last six and a half years since I've been doing this job, I've been energized, liberated. It has been my favorite period in my political life for sure. We're doing some really great things, as I'm sure Andy will say. He is in in uh, the country's third city region. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant job and it's a an exciting place to be uh, at this moment in time in in Greater Manchester. The the skyline of the city is changing dramatically. We're growing faster than the UK economy, which is a pretty good thing. So we're here to tell you why. I think both of us are here to tell you why. Uh, At a time when the country feels pretty broken, English devolution is definitely one of the things that is working and is fixing things. 
And I'm Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands, like Andy B said, uh, inaugural Mayor of the West Midlands. And one of the lovely things about this is you can shape it when you start something. In terms of accents and identification, I'm probably the only one with a mild Brummy accent, and I'm proud of that, even though it's not historically been very fashionable. Unlike Andy, though, I've not got a background in politics. Obviously, I'm a business person, first and foremost. And uh, I guess my formative time as an adult anyway was uh, in John Lewis, where I was lucky enough to be the boss for 10 years. And uh, I still look back with incredible fondness on leading a great British brand. Uh, but equally, I've thoroughly enjoyed the last six and a half years of doing something very, very different. Well, thank you for, for being here. As you know, the motto of our podcast is uh, disagree agreeably. So that we're going to begin by asking each of you to say something nice about the other person, uh, even though you're on different sides of the political fence. So obviously, we've got a, a Labour, Labour mayor, and we've got a Conservative mayor. But I'm going to start maybe unfairly putting the man who's not the politician initially on the spot. Not uh, unfairly at all. So uh, it's very clear what I want to say positively about Andy May. There could be many things, uh, but the thing I'll pick out for this is he is a born politician. For someone who has to learn is the that art, a compliment? it is a compliment. <laughs> you see the opportunity faster than I will ever see the opportunity. But a particular thing I want to pull out, I've been full of admiration for how he's worked with the Conservative government for the benefit of his region. Well, I, I take it as one, Andy, and uh, thank you thank you very much. I, I think we would both probably say that these roles allow you to be more yourself than mm. perhaps other political roles, and that's one of the, the strengths. And so I've seen you, uh, I, I like to think, as you are, and uh, I don't think I've met many people who are more decent and caring uh, and compassionate than, than you. You are absolutely rooted in your, your place, and you know I've enjoyed working with you these last six or so years. Thank you. Oh. Nice Should we finish there? <laughs> Just give us a, um, we do like in these podcasts to talk about your past and delve into. You know all of mine. You I had it in your black yours. book when I you know, were I know all about Downing Street. <laughs> but just, just give us briefly a sense of the jobs that you do. Because I do think there's a problem in our country that people kind of lump politicians all together, don't necessarily a lot of them know how it all works. So, what does the mayor, and I still think there are people who think you're the guys who walk around in chains, as opposed to you're actually, you know, very powerful executive politicians. So what, what do you do? What's your job? Well, there's a number of ways I could answer that question, Alistair, but in, in essence, you're the figurehead for the place. And you may have responsibility over certain things like transport, policing, um, fire service, other things that I could mention that I have direct responsibility for. But at the same time, people look at you and say, why aren't you doing something about the airport? Or why aren't you doing something about, well, anything, the weather, where you name it. So in many ways, we're there to sort of, if you like, be a, a voice for the place. And the thing that I would say, the big difference between my 16 years in Westminster and the six and a half years in this role is you kind of start from a different uh, uh, premise, which is a, a place first approach. So you are dealing with things differently. You know, if you're not putting the place first and you're going with a sort of party script, you're really not starting the job in the right in the right way. And I think Andy's done his job in that way. I've done my job in that way. And I think that therefore allows you to do politics differently. And I would say we are doing that. We're kind of putting place first. We are working differently in a pragmatic sense. And, and that is actually what is its great strength. And I think if Westminster operated more on a place-first 
premise, then I think it probably would connect better with the public. So I hate to agree too readily with what's been said, given the mission is supposed to be agreeable disagreement, but that is the nub of it. This is a different political job. I always say my only responsibility is to champion the West Midlands. But that's what people expect of their mayor. There is the formal bit. You might call it the job description, as it says on the tin. Yes, you're responsible for public transport. Yes, responsible for the, uh, the education and skills across some aspects of the region. But really, you are expected to step into anything that has an impact on your region long term. One of the things that's a bit ambiguous in what we've just heard is what exactly your executive, sort of chief executive, mm authority is. And you should be able to see that very clearly because you were a chief executive. Mm, mm. You were somebody running a business. Mm. What, what did you have to learn in the first three, four years in the job about the difference about being the chief executive of John Lewis and your current job? So the strange thing in that question, Rory, is everyone assumes there is huge, a sort of vast cavern of difference. And I would actually put it to you that there's more similarity between being a chief executive of a company and this particular political job. Chief executive of a company, the buck stops with you. You're on the TV if something's gone well, something's gone badly. You're accountable for the results. I feel accountable for our performance in exactly the same way. But in terms of telling people what to do, yes. I, I mean, it, yes. presumably as the chief executive of a big company, it, I, I felt as a politician often that I was representing, I was championing, Yes, but I often felt more like a non-executive board member in relation to my civil servants than you would do running a company. And I think there is a subtle difference in this particular job. So very clearly, I have a chief executive and a whole civil service, you might call it, there in the West Midlands Combined Authority, which has gone from literally nothing. There wasn't a room, there wasn't a secretary, anything, to quite a substantial organisation now and they deliver but as always clear they take their political instruction from the executive politicians and so you do have that responsibility. And Andy in Manchester what's your relationship with the local authorities yeah. in that in that area. That's the other thing I think people struggle with is who are they yeah. who are they meant to <laughs> in the Gillian Keegan mould thank when everything is going well and who are they meant to shout at when it's not? So in many ways I'm one of eleven there are 10 Greater Manchester boroughs. And you're one know. of 11. Well, if you're going to sort of go about the job again in the right way, you've got to think of it that way. You could say in some ways, if you're like, you're, you're the head of that team, you're the captain of that team. But thinking of it as a team is really important because the organisations that Andy and I lead are called combined authorities. So unlike London, where the GLA is a sort of separate layer above the councils of London, the 30 or so councils, the 10 councils of Greater Manchester and the seven seven councils of the West Midlands. Thank you, Andy. You know, they are our combined authority. So we are at our best when we make decisions where the team is with us. And the seven in Andy's case, the 10 in my case have all said, okay, this is the right direction of travel. Because the great strength of the Greater Manchester system and the West Midlands system is if you can agree with everybody, the whole city region then moves as one in that direction and it becomes a really powerful thing. I mean, I have some, to answer your question, Rory, my powers are slightly different from Andy's. You know, I, I have powers over policing as the police and crime commissioner. So I've changed the chief constable, I've appointed a new one. That's my decision, but I will do it talking to the other leaders. I'm the first mayor to take the de decision to put buses back under public control. And in the law, that's my decision and my decision alone. But again, you use it in a way that brings people with you. And 
we we were a three party state in Greater Manchester. I know people think of it as the uh, the People's Republic, but you know we had a Conservative leader and a, a Lib Dem leader until recently. It was always better to have all ten lined up behind the decision before moving forward. And just to build on that, when I said this role is a different political role, if I think of the political balance of the West Midlands, four Labour councils, three Conservative councils, one Conservative mayor, 14 Conservative MPs, 14 Labour MPs, there is an obvious point. You achieve more when you work together. Our adversarial Westminster system, completely different to what we have, where we have to work together to get the best outcomes. So, so one of the things, I mean, let, let's, we're talking in London here. And um, it's tempting to imagine the mayor's responsible for everything. So if the tube's not working, you're like, why haven't you fixed the signalling on the Piccadilly line? And if knife crime's going up, you know, why haven't you sorted out the police? And if there's no affordable housing, why haven't you built the affordable housing? But I guess the mayor is often tempted to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I don't have full power over these things. I don't control the full budgets on these things. So for me as a voter, it's often difficult to know whether I can actually hold them responsible for the fact that signaling's rubbish on the Piccadilly line. Well, I, I, I think it's, there's no point arguing really at times with people. I mean, we kind of do, I guess, sometimes, Andy, don't we? We'll say, well, look, I'm not directly responsible for that. And, but where does that actually get you? I think you know, we've gone from a, a world in the English cities outside of London where people didn't have one person to complain to. And therefore, they found it hard to hold the system accountable because who did they complain to? They, they didn't have an idea. When the train started going wrong in the north of England, pretty much you know, year after we all came into our roles, the least they had one person to say, this is wrong, fix it. Now, I didn't have the power over it, but you've still got to take on that responsibility to do your best to fix it. So I wouldn't personally get too hung up on, do I have power over this or do I not? You have clearly huge power of influence over all public and private bodies within within the city region. And you have something else, which I would say is our superpower as mayors, and it's a convening power. Get everybody around the table, get the conversation going and get a solution. That, in many ways, Andy, I would say, I don't know what you feel, that's our greatest power that's given to us to bring people together. Let me just jump in though, because you, you, Andy Street, are in a situation now, you're mayor of West Midlands, and you've got Birmingham City Council, a Labour Council that's going yeah. through really difficult financial problems. Yeah. Is there not a part of you, even if you're not as natural a politician as Andy Burnham, is there not a part of you that's thinking, on the bigger picture here, there may be some political advantage? Uh, yes, is the honest answer to that, Alistair. And let's be honest, we face that day in, day out in our role. We're recording this on the day where this news has broken. And literally just before I came in here, I was thinking about the statement I was going to give to the media. And it would have been oh so, so simple to slam them and their end of it, because that's perhaps the traditional political answer. But there's something in here that says, yes, the Labour leadership of Birmingham must be held accountable for what they've done. But also the citizens of Birmingham are sitting at home thinking, and what's my mayor going to do about this? Is he going to rise above the sort of punch and judy tradition? Is he actually trying to go? and do something positive to resolve this. And ultimately, I hope in that tension, I would always fall for the latter. And Andy, what have you learned about that? You've been in Westminster politics, as has Rory, who tried to get out of it and be a mayor. What have you learned from what you two are doing now that might be useful in Westminster politics trying to change from the pretty messy situation it's in now? So as I said before, Alistair, I had 16 years there. And in my first eight years, I did what you told me. 
and uh, read out the script in the studio and uh, voted us. This, this is not. This is not true. <laughs> and and then I kind of uh, made my way up a little bit, as you might remember. And there was a big moment in my life, and I've got to be honest about it. It was going as culture secretary to Anfield on the twentieth anniversary of the. Hillsborough disaster. And I had been, as you know, at the other semi-final on that day in 1989. And I knew everything about how people felt uh, in Liverpool, both red and blue parts of the city about, you know, I've been at Hillsborough myself in 1988. I knew it, knew it all in detail. So it kind of became a moment for me in my political journey as to what I was about and what I was trying to do. And I realized at that point, without going to all the detail, that I had to step outside of the norms, really. If I was going to advance I couldn't, I'd, I'd made a decision that I couldn't go to Anfield without reopening Hillsborough. And my brother had said to me, only go if you're going to do something for the families, and Don't go if you're just going to go for the thing. You know, you've got to go if you mean business on it. And so having made that decision, I, I knew at that moment it put me on a different path. And I had to start operating very differently in, in Westminster because I'd made a commitment to the, to the families. And, and I just started I think to sort of understand how power works in that Westminster system or how it doesn't work often mm. and how it had left an entire English city crying injustice for 20 years and hadn't done anything for them. So how do you overturn that? And it was when I kind of, if you like, came out of my sort of tribal comfort zone and started to speak to people and made a, a connection with Theresa May. Uh, particularly, and uh, working with my good friend, the mayor of Liverpool City Region, Steve Rotherham, we started to sort of, you know, work around the place and, and just operate differently. Well, that's when I realised that that is how change gets made, and that is where change is more likely to be meaningful and lasting. Uh, and there were other examples in my sort of second eight years in Parliament. I would say pretty much it was a game of two halves for me. My first eight years were a traditional Westminster sort of journey. My second eight years were very different. So by the time I left Westminster, I, I, I took my first steps out of Westminster the day I walked forward to address the COP, I think. And by the time I left, I was a very in a very different mindset and very ready for the role that I've since taken up. I, I wondered, Andy, whether paradoxically, the fact that he was a professional politician for a long time allows him to talk more introspectively about failures, about change. And that maybe I, I'm going to give you an, an opportunity to do that uh, and to see if you can reflect on ways that you've changed in your life, things that you did less well in, what you've learned along the way, why you're a different person now to who you were in the past. Oh, uh, I think everybody changes in that way, Rory, just with the passage of age. Um, it's that simple. Um, I've learned that perhaps the most powerful form of leadership is leading from behind. And, uh, you know, those classic business books about appointing brilliant people around you, that is probably the single most important piece of advice. And I genuinely think that what I've tried to do in this job is very different to how I perhaps thought about my early days of running a company in and that sense. To, to what extent do you think your personal life being openly gay has been important to you? How much do you talk about that? Are you a very private person? Are you someone who finds it easy to talk about those kind of things it's in public? It's fascinating. Um, well, I think it's fascinating because the answer has been... Go on. You're going to say I only get asked about it in interviews. Yes, that's exactly the right answer. <laughs> it is utterly irrelevant to how I do my job, to how people relate to me. And it is the fascination of the, what's the word, the commentator rather than those people on the pitch. So I genuinely but, think... But is that partly because 
Am I picking it's up part, that you're quite a private person yeah, who doesn't want um, to talk? I mean, because yeah, you know, yeah, we're all fascinated by his mental health, but he talks yeah. about it nonstop, right? But hang on a minute. You can be uh, a private person, but you're still very honest about your situation. There's never been any debate about that. Uh, but it honestly is utterly irrelevant to how I go about things in, in one sense. In another sense, it probably is relevant because it sort of sets your own value set, your standards. Uh, so in that sense, it's there deep in what makes you the person you are. But in terms of wearing a sign and then people reacting to you because of that sign, I can genuinely say irrelevant. And I think that's an incredibly positive thing about the society that we have. The only thing I'll say about it, not where it is relevant, is if you look at this history, Mm. If this job had existed 20, 30, 40 years ago, you wouldn't have been of able course. to get it and be open about yourselves. So and that's where I think, so it's, it's a good thing yeah. that you feel that it's relevant, but I think it's still, in, I think it's still quite important that people, in a way, it's important that people think it's irrelevant. That's exactly the point I'm making, that uh, that uh, if, if everyone's sitting around talking about it on the streets of Coventry and Wolverhampton, it would be a complete failure. The fact is just accepted as the way it is and you're a leader in your own right with all of your personal experiences going back over the last 50 years making what you are, that I think is incredibly positive. But I think it's again the difference between the world that Andy and I are in and, and the Westminster world where those personality things and the kind of scrutiny of people is is much greater and and I think all, always, in my experience, became quite dysfunctional, really. You know, the strangers bar culture of, you know, everybody finding out everything and kind of rumour mill and gossip. But when I look back at it now, I think Westminster needs a complete overhaul, a huge overhaul. I just don't think it functions properly. It's trapped in that party-first approach. And what I was saying before is, you know, it, it's only when you kind of allow for collaboration, when things can move forward and move forward in a, in a positive way, I, I just think you know the, the Westminster system is kind of it's it's really not connecting with the with the public because it just watches people point scoring all of the time and it, it, people tune out from it and I think the listeners to your podcast I think are in that space a bit aren't they that something different you know, the fact that you two are doing this together and the appetite for your podcast to me speaks to a kind of desire for a very different way of doing politics. As quite a private person, you're not a professional politician, you were a thing. So I'm being about unfair to you. What's the most interesting question you've ever been asked in an interview that actually made you think? Oh, gosh. Um, it's probably one about failure and what you learn from failure and uh, how failure can be a good thing, actually. And um, uh, certainly my experience, some of the toughest things is what you learn most from. That can sound like a cliche, but it genuinely is true. Uh, I think. So will you give us an example? Oh, uh, um, my time, it, it would be working, John Lewis, when I was early director, you know, the star kid, and I screwed it up completely. And I thought I should have been sacked, but someone gave me a second chance. And uh, second chances are very important in life. So have you given second chances to people? I always have yeah, thought of I, I hope that people would say yes, as long as people learn from their experiences. Just on the political arrangements, do yeah. you think it benefits you that there is a Conservative government in Whitehall, or actually is there a sense that it might sometimes hinder you? And likewise with you, <laughs> Andy, if there's a Labour government, yeah. is that going to be good for you as Mayor of Manchester, or might that give you problems that you, you have to kind of wrestle with? I think it's in terms of how you play this role, being part of the governing party is definitely a disadvantage because I constantly have to, interests of West Midlands first, that's what I said my job was, they're the only people I'm loyal to, I'm not whipped to everyone, but there's a good part of the government who think 
he's supposed to be doing our bidding all the time and he should be all to all to us and they don't like it if you're not and you've been very critical of the whole leveling up occasionally and you have this is the whole point you choose your moment to have to do that because you only have so much uh, political scope to do that my assumption and andy may correct me is that it is actually if you are part of the opposition party it is more straightforward but as i said earlier on he's been quite wise in working with government as well it's a very complicated question, isn't it? And I think we wrestle with it all the time because I've not wanted to do the point scoring thing. So sometimes people think I am doing that. So I got accused of doing that in the pandemic, but I can assure you when I opposed tier three and the financial package they kind of put on the table, trying to give people two thirds of their wages, people who worked in bars and restaurants, you know, that was real. You know, that, that, was, that was speaking for a region that was hurting at that moment in time. Uh, and it was true to what I said when I left Westminster that if the government get it right, I will say so. But if they get it wrong, I will call them out in the most powerful way I can with everything I've learned in, in my time in Westminster. I've tried to tried to stick to that all the way through. And I think this is where I think both political parties in Westminster have to sort of accept our role. We can do things to keep the people of our city regions, if you like, connected to our political parties because we're prepared to act that little bit independently. Alistair will remember in the early days of devolution in Scotland, Scottish Labour got branded the, the branch office and it killed Scottish Labour for a period. Welsh Labour didn't go that way. They always kept more of a sense of we're, no, hang on, we're for the Welsh interest first. And I think Westminster needs to understand now it's created these roles. You have to give people latitude to be place first. And that will be true hopefully, when there's a Labour government shortly. So we have a lot of international listeners, and some of them will be sitting there thinking, I want to know more about these places. So I'm going to start with you, Andy Byrne. Can you say some nice things about Birmingham and the West Midlands <laughs> and try to explain how you would think their distinct strengths are? And then I'm going to ask you to do the same about Manchester. Okay. I'm going to put those jokes aside. We do have a very healthy uh, uh, rivalry. But actually... And, and, and to, to the, some precise things, so different yeah, industrial I, I heritage, different cultures. Different. True of the English cities outside of London, all of them actually, they have much more in common than what separates them. And, and actually, if I, uh, I do, the, the West Midlands, the black country culture as a warmth and a humour, I think it's a bit of the Irish influence as well, particularly in Birmingham, the big Irish influence mm. in Birmingham. I mean, it's huge in Liverpool, obviously, but it's pretty big in Manchester as, as well. And I think there's just a sort of, there's a cultural sort of um, commonality uh, there between the, the English uh, cities. And there's a, a sort of, a, you know, people are decent and, you know, and, and the West Midlands in many ways would, would mirror uh, large parts of, of Greater Manchester. And do you feel any tension between, you know, a city whose heritage was steel and a thousand trades compared to a history of cotton or differences in art and culture or I mean, anything like that? Do you feel that last today? Or? Well, I won't get on to football because Andy's <laughs> going to be distinctly uh, uh, playing uh, second best there. But now the, the culture is, you know, the, the same things. The interests of Andy's residents in West Midlands, football, music, popular, they're the same, aren't they? They're, they're the same things. I think there is a difference, though, uh, when you look at Manchester. I think Manchester is different to Liverpool and other cities in the north in that it's always had an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, people think back to that era, the height of Cottonopolis and, you know, the, the power of the city in the um, in the trading environment. But it always also had a social conscience. And, uh, you know, this is a city that never walks on by on the other side. So I proudly point to the fact that it's the home of the suffragettes, 
the birthplace of the trade union movement and the place where those cotton workers refused to handle slave pit cotton yeah, in Manchester. What, what, what have you done? What's Birmingham done? <laughs> oh, we've, got a, we've got a fine progressive tradition. Well, the first thing is we don't count first, second and third cities at all. We're sufficiently confident not to worry about the numbers. Uh, so uh, the, the first thing to say just um, on it is... Um, and he's right. When you look at the data, and we'll come to some of the emotional stuff in just a minute, but when you look at the data, the West Midlands and Greater Manchester are almost identical. So there is an obvious point here. The issues that we're facing are very similar. If you look at the similar GD, big population sizes, populations GDPs. are almost identical. If you look at the economic output, it's almost identical. If you look at some of the uh, performances where we're weak and we freely admit we've still got huge issues to deal with, we have very similar data. So it, it is, there's a huge commonality there. In terms of what we've contributed to the world, well, there's no debate. Where did the Industrial <laughs> Revolution start? There is absolutely no question. Where was the heart of nonconformist entrepreneurship? Well, it was in Bourneville, wasn't it? Or so I think we're going to get no the first debate. note of disagreement uh, uh, in this podcast. So, so there's no debate about that. Uh, what do I admire, Manchester, uh, to come to? I actually admire a confidence. And the truth is, we lost our confidence. The deindustrialization in the West Midlands happened later than in the North, but it actually happened much faster, uh, particularly through the late 70s and 80s. And we were left in a really weak place. Uh, our sporting prowess fell away. Production of musical breakthroughs fell away. Uh, so at the same time, at the turn of the millennium, Manchester was finding its cool. And we had some catching up to do. And part of my job has been to, I can't produce music or football, but I can make sure we tell the story really in a more confident that, though, way. Just to say very quickly, I, I grew up in Greater Manchester, actually, and you know, was in the, the, the area in the mid-80s when we, we'd gone, we'd lost a lot of things and it was pretty moribund. But when I got to university, ended up in a very different world to the one I'd grown up in, I all of a sudden had people saying to me, oh, what, you saw the Smiths at Salford University? And I was like, oh my God, I've got something that they actually want. And it was like a, I remember that experience of thinking, wow, we've got things, we've got cultural capital that people in these really wealthy affluent parts of the country want from us. And I, that was a big thing in my life. You know, the, those bands of the 80s kind of made us think, oh, hang on, we can be better than this. We, you know, we can sort of lift our heads up a bit. Just briefly back on the, on the, the political relationship. So you've had a situation recently with Ulez in London, where Labour lose a by-election and the party nationally seems to me to be sort of turning a bit on Sadiq Khan, who's the same party. And the government, even though it was a Tory mayor who brought Ulez in, spots a political opportunity and seems to me starts to turn up, not just tear up his Ulez approach, but entire environment approach to the environment. And... I just wondered there whether that makes you worry, Andy, about this this point. Andy's point about you know whether you've got decisions that you make, positions that you take that your party doesn't necessarily like, and whether that becomes much much harder to to manage if you have a Labour government, and whether you're giving that any thought. I think it does become harder for sure, um, and obviously I've had a degree of difference on on issues uh, with people, but I think you have to come back, as Andy Street said earlier, to the role when. I was elected in 2017 and then again in 2021. I was very conscious that people beyond traditional Labour voters had, had given me their support. And you just have to be clear that that is the case. And out of respect for those voters, you have to put the place first, even if that causes uh, difficulty uh, with your party. Now, you know, even in opposition, you know, you, you will have differences. And I just think this is where the 
British political culture needs to grow up a little. Mm. It needs to allow the fact that there are combined authorities in the big English city regions now that are cross-party in their makeup. And, and we are doing things that, that Westminster needs to understand and get used to and not kind of always try and sort of slap us down or contradict us. It just needs to understand. Sometimes we will answer them back and sometimes we will say something different back to them. And that's a healthy thing, not an unhealthy thing. If you were going to be very radical and push for much more power going down to local regions, let, let's say some government came along in 10, 15 years time, wrote a whole new constitution and tried to really lean into this question. Can you give us two or three things? I'm not saying they're necessarily things you support, but if you were going to be radical and bold and you really yeah. wanted to do de decentralization, yeah. what might they yeah. be? So the answer to this is about money is power. Uh, and this is the Rubicon that is still really to be crossed. Now, let me just explain. You said earlier on, we've got lots of international listeners and they probably think this is a very odd conversation because if you were in France or mm. certainly the US, uh, the idea of powerful city region mayors is absolutely known. And uh, the French model of them either being having been in national politics, then going local or the other way around, it's just the way it is. And we've got some fantastic examples of what they've done to transform cities there. We are in the infancy of this. We've only been at this for six years and we started from the most centralised country in the OECD by a mile. So we've just begun to swing back the pendulum to responsibility being taken near where people live, near the seat of the action. At the moment, the way it's worked is we have asked government to give us cash. And actually, I think we've both been pretty successful in getting money out of government to improve the fortunes of our regions. I've got all the numbers. We're very proud of it. But we're still asking. The real breakthrough is if we actually raise the cash ourselves. The thing is, Andy, as well, you know, it's, you know, what you're saying is as though it's a kind of radical departure for Britain to have more power in the regions. But the great city region that you lead and the one that I lead, these were the powers in the land in the mm -hmm. 19th century. We were building the railways, inventing the railways, um, you know, bringing through that big Victorian infrastructure. A and it was a 20th century phenomenon, I think, that Correct. the power was kind of more, more drawn back in yeah. into, uh, into Westminster. The thing I would answer your question with, Rory, if you were to ask me, what's the big sort of change, radical change the country needs? We should, we should in my view, follow the German example of a written constitution in which there is a basic law. And that basic law requires an equivalence of living standards between the 16 lender of Germany. And I believe we need the same in this country in a constitution, which would be a new thing anyway, but there should be a requirement that there should be a basic equivalence between the different parts of England. And if there was, I think we'd live in a better country. Andy, where are you on a written constitution? Something that leads to real, the whole country thinking about how we can change our politics. Yeah, whether or not you need a written constitution, I will freely admit I have not um, thought that through. But the underlying point is absolutely right here. This is holding Britain back as a nation overall. Mm. And so this is a national crusade to bring about equivalence. And uh, that's why we've both got into these jobs and why all the levers have to come together to achieve this. Have we also got to change our economic model? I mean, it sometimes yes, feels yes, to me as though sure. the way in which the Treasury calculates return yes. on investment yeah. favours places like London. That the, the very narrow model Mass makes it feel as though the pound they put in here, they get more return. Yeah. They're not thinking about social justice. They're not thinking yeah. about the environment. They're thinking about a very narrow model of financial return. Love to hear you on that. Well, you're absolutely right, Roy. You've put your finger on on that. And if, if you had that 
basic law that I was describing, that economic model would have to change and you'd start to have to have investment on the social case for investment, not just on the economic case. This came home to me when I was Chief Secretary, 2007 at the Spending Review, where Alistair Darling had asked me to put a funding package together for Crossrail, now the Elizabeth Line, which I dutifully did, but said to the Treasury civil servants, but I want a whole range of regional projects to announce at the same time. And I got one, which was a feasibility study for the redevelopment of Birmingham New Street Station, which you'll be pleased to know, Andy. I did sign you off. You signed off, time. and it's a marvellous investment. I just did the early thing. I said to the Treasury Civil Service, where is the list? And they said, well, nothing has passed the Green Book, Minister. And that's when the kind of scales dropped from my eyes, uh, really, because the Green Book is an economic yeah. test. Yeah. Yeah. So the projects will score higher where growth is already highest. So you're constantly giving more to more. And that has been the British economic model. And that is what has got to change if we're to see growth in the English city regions, which which I believe they've all got the potential to provide. It's correct where you're both uh, getting to. Um, So yes, there's lots of technical stuff in the economic models and they do need changing. But the big question is whether you put equal value on actually achieving the aspirations everywhere outside the southeast, as you do in basically continuing the very high achievement levels in the southeast, which of course are a huge national asset. That is true, but it holds the country back as a whole that there is such under potential in the rest of the country. Okay, Andy's Rory, let's take a break. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it, and more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Leveling up, in a word, Andy, Burnham. It's the concept that I've waited all my political life for. The sadness is that it's been a, a vacuous slogan, and that, that it makes me despair because, as Andy Street has articulated just now, it's what this country needs. And actually, it would bring a lot of people back to politics if leveling up was real. And it's not just about money being more fairly spent. It's about agency, isn't it? You know, power in our places, in our nations and regions. That that's what leveling up should be. And, you know, it, it's it's sad, isn't it? You know, we had the last general election fought on get Brexit done and level up the country. One has been a disaster and the other hasn't happened at all. Well, I say it hasn't happened. We're about to introduce a big change to our transport system. We're bringing in a London-style transport. And I think it's going to be the greatest manager to combine authority that will do the biggest and most visible act of levelling up in this parliament. Andy Street, do you agree that levelling up is, was, in the eyes of those who were using it, particularly Johnson, literally just a slogan without a strategy? No, 
I don't. I think that's the the first time there will be strong disagreement in this uh, podcast. I think that allegation is often made. I don't think it bears scrutiny. If you look, I mean, Andy's talked about transport, so let's use that as the example. It is definitely right for decades, the resources all went into London and lo and behold, the productivity of London, just like any other international city that's had huge investment, improved dramatically and regional cities were starved. That has definitely changed in the last six years. The stat is we've got seven times as much money as we used to have for our transport investment. The government have put cash on the table. They've not given us the responsibility necessarily for deciding how we spent ourselves, but there I'll has been I'll rephrase investment. slightly, Andy. I'll rephrase slightly. There's been some moves in that direction that have... You know, we've got some productivity growth in Greater Manchester that's higher now than the, the England average, so I, you know, to a degree. But if you really go with what that phrase means, level up, Mm-hmm. You're talking of colossal investment. You're talking the level of investment that went into East Germany after reunification, you know, because such it, is the divide. It, it's between... not been the driving mission of this government. No, I didn't say it had. But, no. has, okay. uh, but it, you said it was just a slogan, and I do not agree with that. Okay. If you look at what I think Michael, for Johnson it was. But, uh, if you yeah. look at what Michael Gove has done consistently... We, we talk about the cash over redistribution, but there are also uh, issues to do uh, with private business, where it is located, going back to what Andy said about the 19th century. That's what drove the cities of outside London, a vibrant private sector. The efforts around inward investment outside London have been good. I can prove you more business has come in, more investment has come in as a result of that. That will drive opportunities in the West Midlands. If I look at the improvement of the qualifications of our workforce so that we can attract those people, if I look at the way in which R&D has gone into our universities, some of those long-term determinants, there is a positive story. One, one thing that she said I thought was very interesting is only one uh, no, no, you said many interesting <laughs> things but, but just in the last answer was was um about the way in which you didn't feel that necessarily you had the full decision about how the investment worked and yeah. my my intuition is that industrial strategies work best when they're more decentralized they're more local Correct. when there's more flexible control because you know your place best w- what would it take to shift to a model of industrial strategies where you as examples of people, the two Andes, had more control over the local application. Give us a sense of what yeah. a good... Yeah. Give me one industrial strategy yeah. in Birmingham, one from Manchester that I can get my head around. With pleasure. Yeah. And Rory, this won't be unfamiliar to you because in Theresa May's day uh, with um, Greg Clark as Secretary of State, our two regions were the pilots for having regional industrial strategies. I was a huge believer in them. And even though the national government has moved away from them, we have not. We call it our plan for growth uh, for the West Midlands. And what it does, to answer your question head on, it chooses the clusters where we have a competitive advantage, not just against Manchester and Liverpool, but against Boston and Barcelona and everywhere else and their fast growing areas. Give us an example from you and then an example from Manchester. I'll give you four straight at the top of my head. Logistics really strong. Of course, elements of professional services, aerospace manufacturing, and the biggest one of all for us, electric vehicle manufacturing. Thank you very much. So I'm going to talk about an enabling policy for a good industrial strategy, and that is technical education. When we had the recent negotiation with Michael Gove, and absolutely, Andy, I will say Michael has been a a big supporter, hasn't he? And and fair enough, he he helped us bring through a new trailblazer set of powers, which, which we appreciated. We said to Michael, we need technical education at the top, because when investors are talking about coming to Greater Manchester, the biggest reason why they may say, we're not sure is this thing about can you get the people, can you get the talent? We want to bring through the country's first integrated technical education system. In simple terms, at 14, two clear equal routes 
for young people in Greater Manchester. One academic university route, the other technical towards qualifications in the world of work. You know, technical education has always played second fiddle in this country. It's always been the poor relation. And the reason why it's never worked is you can't fix it from a national level. The needs of the labour market in Greater Manchester are different from the West Midlands. Therefore, you have to have a devolved approach or you will never fix technical education. I've said I want a Greater Manchester baccalaureate so that you know young people growing up in Greater Manchester know what GCSEs, we're saying to them, look, those are the ones you should take to get the best jobs in the, the tech sector or in the green sector. And you know, inevitably, there's a kickback from Whitehall, but we're going to stick to our guns on it. We want to fix technical education and create parity between academic and technical. In your last answer, you mentioned Brexit. I'd like to ask you both what your sense is of what Brexit has done to the country as a whole, and then more specifically to, to your regions. Well, when I was queuing at Palmer Airport to have my passport stamped and it took, I wasn't thinking it was, it was turning out great. I'll be honest with you. Um, no, I, it, 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 personally, I think, you know, without rerunning the referendum, the decision to go for a hard Brexit has been utterly disastrous and has damaged us immensely, I think. And I'll just give you one example so that it's not rhetoric. Let me give you a practical example. You know, I've mentioned it. We're, we're world famous for our music industry. You know, that is, that is one of Greater Manchester's top exports, uh, but it's actually one of the UK's top exports. We are dominant in that. So what sense is there in turning down the offer of visa-free access for our musicians to Europe? I mean, what on earth drove that other than ideology and rhetoric? And that's damaged our music industry. So I was no Brexiteer, as I think I know. you all know, but um, uh, maybe listeners don't. But my region was the biggest pro-Brexit region in the country. So I suppose, uh, as Andy said, no point going back. The decision was taken, it was democratically taken. Um, there has been a sense of, and there still is in parts of the West Midlands, a sense of empowerment. It actually was a decision that was genuinely taken by the people. Now that might seem an odd thing for me to pull out, Alistair, but I do genuinely come across it regularly. But economically? Economically, the situation is very clear that uh, it was damaging. Uh, to the West Midlands. Being the export capital of the UK, higher proportion of our GDP from exports than anybody else, our exports fell away dramatically. The good news, not that I voted for it, is the recovery in exports in the last year has been quite dramatic. And we're almost back to where we were pre-Brexit. Well, what, what are we going to do? And just this probably my getting towards the very final question for me and then back to Alistair again. What do you think about the bigger world? A lot of the bet around Brexit was we were going to move away from the European Union. We were going to get closer to big growing economies like China. Mm. And six years later, that feels very different. Chinese economy not growing the way it was. We can see defense and security problems with being too close to China. And we're beginning to think maybe we need to be closer to some of our European neighbors. Mm. What is it about big changes in the big global economy, Southeast Asia, China, the US, India, that might affect first Birmingham and then Manchester and back to Alistair? So you picked up India. Uh, we've had to make some bets. One of the things about this job is resources are not very plentiful and you have to choose what you're going to do. After Brexit, we chose we're going to focus on our relationship with India. It's paid off. Record inward investment to the West Midlands last year. India, for the first time, the biggest investor in the West Midlands ahead of the US. And obviously, if you think of 
their growing sectors and some of our strengths as a real piece. So that mega economic piece has paid Tell off. Tell us about that. How does that come together? Their sectors, your sectors, what sort of things they're investing in and how does that work for them and for you? Uh, they're investing in a lot of the advanced manufacturing sectors and the things that they are most attracted by, again, linking some of the conversations together, is the R&D in our universities and the skilled talent that we have. That's why we have to keep working on that. So if I, if I think about the 21st century and, you know, what are the big driving forces of change, it's digitalization and decarbonization. And where are those changes happening most? They're in cities. Cities are leading those, those changes. We're bringing that stuff through more quickly. And so, you know, Michael Bloomberg has been a big influence, actually, and uh, Steve Rotherham, I think Andy's had mm -hmm. some connection with him. He, he connects mayors from around the world. And what you get a sense of, Rory, when you're in those settings is, Actually, city to city, people to people relationships, and then the diplomacy that falls out of that is actually where it's at, really. Because if you're always doing everything through the prism of national government and the tensions that come with you know, the UK-Irish relationship or UK-France, politics gets bound up in that and progress stalls. So it's been said, I think, by a mayor of the US that you know the 19th century was the century of the empire state, the 20th century was the century of, of state national government and the 21st century must be the century of the city because they're the drivers of change and English cities are not punching their weight on the world stage. Michael Heseltine, I think, has been, you commissioned a report, Andy, didn't you, that said, that said this, you know, free up the English cities to sort of really get in that game of driving digitalization, decarbonization. And then I think we will re-industrialize the West Midlands and the North of England in a good way. My final question, Manchester, I think, Andy Street, you would accept, has got two football brands that are a bit bigger. <laughs> yes. You'd accept that? Okay. Uh, for now, but okay, what's the yeah, question yeah. I was saying? So the question is always subpotential. The Villa are on the way back. Yes. Villa battered yeah. Burnley. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that. So that Manchester football gives you something uh, that is very, yeah. very powerful globally. I'm not saying that Villa isn't a big name in Birmingham City in its own way, especially now you've got Tom Brady involved. Yeah, yeah. Watch this space. Okay, okay. Yeah. What I want to ask you is about big, yeah. big moments and big events. Yeah. So both yeah. of your cities have done the Commonwealth Games in the recent yeah. past. I just wonder what yeah. you get out of those. Yeah. And I've no, uh, the reason I ask that is because I don't know if you've seen recently a couple of cities pulling out mm. of bids for the Commonwealth Games, mm. including Melbourne. Mm. One, what do you think about trying to step back mm. in um, and did you get something very very lasting and enduring out of that so we watched with admiration how manchester dealt with it in 2002 uh, i was enthralled with how london dealt with the olympics in 2012 so when the opportunity came for us uh, for the commonwealth games we were going to win it we were going to win that bid and that was it and it's one of the lovely things about this job is the longevity of tenure. How long do cabinet ministers stay in their post? We've both been doing this for six and a half years. We hope to continue to do it. And you are able to see these things through. And it is very clear that the Commonwealth Games has been an incredible success for Birmingham and the West Midlands. We've done lots of research on it. The brand of Birmingham has been improved internationally. And lots comes from that. Where do students apply to? Where do businesses apply to? All of that. Where do tourists go? And it has got a long-term advantage. So I would say to anyone who was going to do it and is now pulling out fools. And just one little postscript, which you'll love. Uh, the money that we got back from the underspend on the games, we're actually now using it for all sorts of things, the legacy. But one thing we just announced last week was we're hosting what they call Sport Accord, which is where the International Federation of All Big Sports, including the Olympic Committee, come for their annual conference. A wonderful showcase. We would not be doing that if we hadn't done the games.
Well, and I would uh, agree. I mean, 2002 was massive for for Manchester, and obviously it created the infrastructure that supports uh, Manchester Manchester City and everything that's grown in that part of East Manchester. The transformation there is just phenomenal. You know, people couldn't recognise what was there before. I think you know this is this is you know, where the mayor gets you know a bit boastful towards the end of the discussion. I think I would say we are the biggest football city in the world. We have got two clubs that are Champions League winners. Now only. You know this. Who else can say that? Um, Milan can say it. I don't think Madrid can even say it because no. Atletico have never won it. So, you know, we we are a colossal football power. And whenever I go around the world, and I've been to India, uh, as Andy has been, we'll be going to Japan later this year, the football clubs come with us. So we deploy our cultural capital very much on the world stage and everyone wants to talk well they want to talk about Manchester United mainly I have to say but City obviously are becoming a you know irresistible force but no but both obviously you know mm. the power of those two and often they will come together and they're great actually the way they engage both clubs in the, the life of the city but then you go to South by Southwest as I did earlier this year and you introduce New Order from the stage I mean we, we have got big big cards to put on the table that kind of get noticed perhaps more than some of London's cards and, uh, and you're, you're, you're still traded off my name say Ali Campbell oh, I was going to say yeah and of course Ozzy Osbourne <laughs> but I will make a date to come back to see you when uh, the Villa are in the top four which is clearly where we're heading and uh, are you Birmingham, a Villa fan Andy? of course yeah. and Birmingham City have fulfilled what they have to do and it's a breakthrough but the, the point about these big brands being ambassadors is absolutely right and the cultural history is part of that as well. And we've tried to bring, we have less strength in football at the moment, but in terms of culture, cuisine, all these Michelin things, can, restaurants, all of so these things right. can so be he, brought in. Peaky blinders. Peaky blinders. Good for Birmingham. Huge for Birmingham. If you go to New York and Good you talk image. about, yes, and you talk about, you well, talk, I, you've, been, are, you've, you've been, been to Birmingham away at St Andrews, <laughs> like, absolutely, very accurate. <laughs> you go to New York and you talk about Brum, they talk about Peaky Blinders. Yeah, sure. Huge. I think Rory just sat here getting more and more jealous that you're doing these jobs because it's the one that you wanted to do as London Mayor, but it didn't quite work out. I, I would have loved to be a mayor. I you think you've, you've, both of you have done such amazing jobs. It's a real privilege to be with you both. Thank you. And I'm, I'm a great admirer of you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Rory, our first double header, us two with two others. What do you make of that? Well, I thought it was absolutely lovely. I, I mean, I actually really thought that Andy Byrne's analysis of Westminster and my sense of it, what I've been writing about, thinking about, it's almost identical. I mean, I, I, I've always loved Andy Burnham and admired him, but listening to him, I, I really did think, my goodness, I'm moving to Manchester. <laughs> I think there's something so interesting about what could happen. And it's probably the most exciting thing in British politics. It's, it's the one time, you, you picked it up that I was getting excited. The one time I felt in the last few weeks doing the podcast, I really want to get back into this. I, I'm interested in this. There's something happening mm. here that I really want to get involved mm. in. Uh, see, I felt that. And it was interesting, so for example... Putting to one side Andy Burnham's ridiculous claim that he used to do everything I told him to do. I thought it was interesting, for example, he, if you think about the people that he mentioned really, really positively, Theresa May, Michael Heseltide, Andy Street and the work that he was doing, he's definitely found a kind of new way of doing this. And I think the point he made, this is what we were trying to say about Sadiq Khan and Ulez. And I get this. Look, we were the people who tried to destroy Ken Livingstone right. because we didn't want right. him to run. Right. But the central parties have, have got to embrace this thing properly and understand it is about being different. And I really hope that Labour embraces in a way that thus far I don't feel they are. Yeah, I, I do think that's right. I think there's 
two challenges. One is that sometimes my friends in Labour feel that things are quite tightly controlled, that three or four people in the centre are running everything, and they're not really making the most of people like Andy Burnham, who I think are, he's become, I don't know what he was, but he's become an extraordinary communicator. There's a lot of charisma there. There's a lot of confidence there that Labour could be using. And I think the second thing is, let's lean into the formal package. One of the things he was saying as we were walking out the door is, they're ready to go now. They've got the delivery mechanisms ready. If you give them the money, they can deal with it. That might not have been true 20, 30 years ago. But if a new government came in that really wanted to make something of this, Manchester, Birmingham, you could give them the resources and wow, they could fly. Mm. Andy Street, first time I'd met him, very not like a politician, really, was he? No, but paradoxically, it's something that I think you noticed when we were interviewing Mustafa Suleiman. Sometimes the people who aren't politicians can sometimes seem more cautious and sometimes a little yeah. bit more defensive than a politician. Yeah, yeah. I sensed him getting a bit prickly with your private life explorations, um, which is fair enough, I guess. But I, I, I thought both of them, though, had a real, a genuine passion for what they're doing. Oh, and I, I felt as an interviewer, I mean, it was my fault as an interviewer. I should have realized earlier on he didn't want to talk about his private life at all. But as soon as I got him on to industrial strategy in Birmingham, boy, was he interesting, fluent. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. No, that was very, very good. I think we should think about another double pairing at some point. What about the Israeli ambassador and the Palestinian ambassador? Well, I can assure you there would be much less of the sort of, I would like to pay tribute to my dear friend and colleague across the table. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, thanks a lot. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you.